How long would a clock continue working in a crocodile? For a zombie outbreak to be a legitimate threat, how contagious would the virus need to be? We obviously use more than 10% of our brain. Where did that idea come from? So, some spiders have a working memory. Could we teach them to spell? Hello, device listeners. This is Device Interviews, and I am Emily T. Griffiths. This is the interview where I get to sit down with Dr. Michael Wall from the San Diego Natural History Museum, otherwise known as the NAT. A lot of the times during these interviews, uh, the scientists and I that I'm speaking with, we talk about books, the books that they're reading, rather before we just dive right into the science. It's a good way to kind of, you know, loosen up the conversation before we dive right in. And we actually got some of Michael Wall recommending a book to me. Uh, It's a Neil Stevenson book. Yeah, Neil Stevenson called Seven Eves. uh, And I've left that in. So you, the listener, uh, if you liked Michael, you might like this book. So anyway, please enjoy the interview. Have you read Seven Eves? Are you familiar with Seven Eves? It's a, I can't remember the name of the author of it right now. He's a relatively famous sci-fi author, but the premise is that um, they never explain how it happened, but uh, something caused the moon to fragment. Like, Hmm. basically the moon exploded, um, but it into a couple of big fragments. But then those fragments started hitting one another, uh, and it turned into a white rain, which was... in incinerated the surface of the earth um but before all that happened they had time and there's like uh, a tesla type character in it and there's a neil degrasse tyson type character in it (laughs) and like you know they're trying to prepare to like save humanity and um it's really long it's hard it's like a hard sci-fi you know it's like it's there's a lot of information about there about um, you know vector trajectories and all this like type yeah. of stuff. And where I think it with gets the a little dense. exception of um, you know with the exception of one of the books that we're covering, we're not really doing hard science fiction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're kind of I'm I'm steering more toward literary fiction yeah. that uses sure. science. Um, sure. uh, we are doing a Philip K. Dick book, but uh-huh. that's. I think I said that's the exception because you have to right. you have a little bit. Are you using that? Oh, like do you need them? No, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I thought yeah. it was in your way, and then I realized maybe you're using it. Anyway, yeah. I'm rolling. So you're you, rolling. You can go whenever. Okay, so I'm just going to thank you for coming and then ask you to introduce yourself. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Dr. Michael Wall, thanks for joining us. If you could give us a little bit of a background of what you're, you're doing here and uh, where you work in San Diego. Yeah, I work at the San Diego Natural History Museum where I'm the curator of entomology, so that means I'm in charge of the bug collection there, and I'm also the vice president of science and conservation. Can you give us a little bit of a history as towards the uh, the age and the size of your collection? Yeah, so the San Diego Natural History Museum dates back to 1874. That was sort of the origins of the—at of the, that time it was a society. There was no museum, um, and— it was really centered around citizen scientists or amateur naturalists, whatever you want to call them, that were interested in uh, biodiversity as a as a recreation, not a not a job. Uh, so there were people who were lawyers, who were fern specialists. There was a guy who was a land surveyor, and he was a beetle specialist. And it's from him, Oliver Sanford, that um, some of our first specimens came from. 
our oldest specimen actually only goes back to 1905 um, because they were taking a lot of the material at that point in time and sending it back to the Smithsonian where like the real professionals were um, to, you know, be able to identify these things that really were new to science and new to the world because at that time San Diego was a frontier. Mm. Um, So what's the size of your collection now? We're surpassing 1 million specimens. Uh, you know, we have them split up. The There's like what we call a dry collection. There's a wet collection. The dry collection is sort of like the collection that ever, well, I don't know if every kid does it anymore, but back <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, every kid did an insect collection. You put them on pins, you know, inside the foam, you got your labels on it. So that's what the dried collection looks like. And our dried collection is probably around 750,000. And then the rest of it is a wet collection, which is all um, stored in ethanol. Uh, And and we're doing a lot of that these days because we're doing a lot of big projects where we're um, bringing in a lot of material and it's just hard to pin every insect that you get. (laughs) So it's easier to keep them in individual vials or the same species? The same species from the same collecting event, you know, in a vial. Um, so they're kind of like lots instead of individuals. Okay. Um, so how can collections provide an ecological history to a region? Because our region, even though it was a frontier, uh, during the turn of the century, it was still, um, I imagine the collections that you guys have can tell us a lot about what the land looked like back then. Sure. Yeah. A com- it's a combination of collections and typically uh, natural history collectors are also pretty fastidious about taking field notes. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of the specimens and the field notes. And when photography became more readily available, photography, uh, all those put together really a, a pretty good picture of what the past looked like. And so um, probably one of the the most apropos examples uh, that the museum has been working on lately is uh, up in the San Jacinto Mountains, which are sort of around Palm, outside of Palm Springs. If you mm-hmm. take the Palm Springs tramway up, you're <laughs> at the top of the San Jacinto Mountains. And uh, there was a researcher who uh, named Joseph Grinnell who went there in, and uh, just like really meticulously studied the place at all sorts of different elevations from the, the desert floor all the way up to the top where it's like pine trees and you know the, um, the, the desert to the, the, the cactus to cloud hike that people do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so they and I think there's 29 different sites and uh, they did do photographs back in 1908 and so they have good good photographs great field notes and the specimens and so in 2008, our, the museum started going back to these sites and trying to see what does 100 years of change look like in the San Jacinto Mountains. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of change, and a lot of that change is reflected in um, the, the, the animals and critters. So you see, like, uh, some desert critters are moving upslope as the world gets a little bit warmer. They move up slope. Uh, but then there's also been increases in fire frequency, and that changes, like, the makeup of the landscape. And so, you know, just by taking collections and sort of assembling what that ecological community looks like, we can recreate the past. Paleontologists do this as well, right? Mm. You know, they that, you know, every, um, every paleontological dig site or whatever you want to call it is is a the a csi you know criminal <laughs> scene where you can reconstruct the past 
Yeah, well, they have, you know, a lot of the times when we see those scenes, there's like these giant dinosaurs that they're uncovering. And really, it's a bone fragger that's maybe an, a lucky. They're lucky if it's like an inch big. Right. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so you mentioned the San Jacinto Mountain Range, but um, you guys have done extensive surveys at Point Loma. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit more about the surveys you guys have done there? Yeah, so we, uh, the entomology department specifically did some work out in Point Loma, and other departments in the museum have done work out there as well, but uh, the Navy was looking for sort of a baseline inventory of their their insects, and that might sound weird, like why does the Navy care about their insects? Um but, you know, Point Loma, the, the land that the Navy manages, part of it is a natural areas, natural areas that they're treating for, like, natural resource management. I mean, there are rare species out there, and they're, they're managing uh, all those species. And so part of um, managing things that might be a little bit more charismatic and larger and easily viewable <laughs> than uh, little tiny bugs is understanding what those larger, more charismatic things might be eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so insects are kind of that. Um, they're, they're the middleman in the food chain between plants and larger vertebrates often. So there's a lot of, you know, obviously birds that are uh, insectivores or insect eaters. And uh, so they wanted to know more about their, their entomology in order to then be able to think a little bit more about the entire ecosystem as opposed to just individual species that might be endangered. Have you guys found anything that's, uh, you know, not necessarily shocking, but something that's new, something you didn't expect to find out there. Yeah, that that, that project's been a while, um, and but some of the things that we did, I know there's a spider biologist who works at the museum, and um, he, uh, unfortunately for me, he has more time to identify spiders than I have time to identify the things I'm interested in. <laughs> so Jim's the one who always comes up with all the cool and interesting finds, uh-huh. and uh, I know on that particular project, I think we found... Uh, like four different species that were new records for San Diego County, like so they had never been found in San Diego County. And there was one or two that we've sent off to experts because we weren't able to identify them. And uh, people, you know, uh, scientific discovery sometimes takes place at a glacial pace. Mm -hmm. uh, And so they're still working these things out, but they think they might actually be undescribed species as well. So. I think there's a, a cool section of the NAT website where uh, you guys have a couple of collections that, you know, anyone can borrow if you're part of an academic right. institution. And, sure. uh, it's interesting because they have, you know, the highlighted bug and there's what you think it is. But you guys are very welcoming of uh-huh. people coming in and taking a closer look, which, you know, I think science t- science in general has this reputation of being very insular and that, you know, mm-hmm. my research is mine and, and only mine. But right. you guys are just like, no, 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 no. Like, like right. please, let's all talk about this together. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's multiple ways in which the museum tries to open the doors to, um, you know, learning and science, uh, science literacy and you know, there's one thing that's called the Nature You Learn Library where anybody, literally anybody, if you sign up for a membership of it, you can come and you can get like things that are in vitrines, but it's more like taxidermy. They're not scientific specimens mm-hmm. per se. They're, you know, uh, things that have been donated to us over the years or they might have been part of the historic museum collection. But uh, so we have a lot of schools that borrow those and artists who want to practice their, you know, drawing skills and stuff like that. Yeah. But then the scientific collections, uh, or what we call our research collections, um, like 
even, you know, I make fun of all the different vertebrate uh, collections because they're dealing with like 500 species of birds in San Diego County and I'm dealing with like 5,000 plus, you know, (laughs) species of insects in San Diego County. But even in those groups where, you know, relative to insects, the taxonomic diversity is super duper duper low, like nobody can do it all. So you have to, I mean, the whole point of having these collections, some of which weren't collected by, you know, not some of which, the vast majority of which weren't collected by anyone who's still alive today, you know, is to share that with the scientific community. So I know exactly what you're talking about, this, you know, idea of mothballed old men with, you know, big shaggy white beards, you know, going mine, mine, you know, but, um, (laughs) but that couldn't be further from the truth. We were regularly contacted by all sorts of, you know, academic research institutions and we send stuff out on loan, you know, we'll mail specimens, you know, but sometimes for very fragile things we say, you're welcome to take a look at it. You just got to come here. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So you said that, uh, Jim, who studies yeah. spiders, he gets to have a lot of cool discoveries. If you did have more time, if you didn't mm-hmm. have all of your administrative <laughs> responsibilities, yeah. what would you be uh, more keen to focus on? Well, I mean, what, what my taxonomic expertise is in um, are the, this group that's called the True Bugs, which mm-hmm. um, they're, 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 their insects have piercing-sucking mouth parts, and there's really not any that are so common that I can go you know, it's a, huh, you know, and people go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I mean, the closest one is to say, you've maybe seen green stink bugs, but then people go, well, I've seen stink bugs, but I've never seen green stink bugs, and that's because they're thinking of the black beetles that people call stink bugs that crawl along on trails, Mm -hmm. which is a completely different group from what I study. But uh, so, yeah, if I had uh, all the time in the world and could do whatever I wanted to do. There's plenty, there's plenty of work to do. I mean, I, I have undescribed species that, that I am fully aware of that we've collected on various expeditions, but I need the time to, you know, write up the descriptions, do all the measurements and all that sort of jazz. So, you all know, the fun I, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I want to get that, uh, information out to the world, but you know, sometimes other duties call. Yeah. Oh, I hope you do get to it. Yeah, I will. <laughs> yeah, someday, you know, I'll retire, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's what most scientists say nowadays. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, so you said that there's a couple of uh, cool spiders that were uncovered, but uh, protected species of uh, bugs, true bugs, um, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. the, I understand that the definition of a true bug, we kind of call things bugs right. very, very generally. Yeah. Um, but are there any, you know, basically species of general bugs that um, San Diegans can be like, no, 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 these are protected, these are ours, and this is something that we should kind of watch out for. Right. Uh, In San Diego, there's a number of species that are either like federally listed as endangered or they might be um, have some sort of status at the state level, Uh, and then there's some that we just know to be you know, sort of rare, that don't have any sort of official status because getting those official statuses can sometimes be difficult, you know, depending on what's happening with, you know, politics at the time. Uh, And so we've got a Kino checker spot is one that is federally listed as endangered. For those of you wondering, as I was during this interview, the Kino checker spot is a type of butterfly. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, the Kino checker spot, which is spelled Q-U-I-N-O, not keynote, as 
I thought he was saying during the interview. Um, Historically, the butterfly was distributed throughout the coastal slopes of Southern California, Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, and San Diego counties. Uh, It could be found in Baja, California, as well as parts of Arizona and the San Monica Mountains. Um, However, now it is, of course, listed as endangered. Okay, back to the interview. It's endangered because it likes to live where we like to live. It likes to live in coastal San Diego, you know, so a lot of its habitat has been destroyed. And that's pretty much the story for endangered species in general is, is habitat destruction. Um, there are There's a butterfly that's up in the Laguna Mountains and over in the Palomar Mountains as well that's appropriately called the Laguna Mountain Skipper. Uh, and it's federally listed as well. Might not have been so much as habitat destruction for them because, you know, there's still plenty of habitat up in the Laguna Mountains and over in Palomar. But um, habitat conversion, you know, can be a problem mm. as well. So a lot of insects are either host plant specialists or habitat specialists. You just can't find them everywhere. They're only going to be, you know, eating this particular species of sunflower or whatever. Or, you know, they're only found in soil that has this percentage of sand in it, you know. And so um, if those plants don't do well, then the insects don't do well. And if we, like, you know, uh, dig up all the regular soil and cover it with, you know, backfill from some other place, then the insects aren't going to do well either. Like people who maybe change the consistency of their yards. Sure. Yeah. 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 So if a lot of these bugs like to live in places that we also like to live, does that also – does that mean that they – would potentially, you know, be using our homes as their homes or are they kind of wary of, you know, are they more um, wanting, you know, some species are averse to humans and other ones really thrive in human uh, habitats. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there, there's a fancy scientific term for that and I get, and I, but I certainly can't remember it as a scientist on site here. Okay. I believe that Michael here is referring to the word cyanthrope which means an undomesticated organism, especially an animal like a mouse or a cockroach, uh, that benefits from where people live and their surroundings and their activities. Okay. There are plenty of insects that are, you know, we could maybe call it human philic. You know, they really like hanging around with humans. Uh, and one that I've noticed, and a lot of people in, in Southern California have noticed, is there's a spider that's called the brown widow spider. It's not the black widow spider is native. The brown widow spider is from South Africa. And uh, it loves hanging out around houses. <laughs> I mean, loves, loves, loves hanging around houses, uh, underside of patio furniture, you know, um, if you don't, you know, move your trash bin for long enough, they're under your trash bin in Balboa Park whenever we we have one on display within the museum and whenever we need to get another one you know our backup spider uh you can go out to any bench in balboa park and look underneath the bench and you'll you'll find at least evidence of them egg cases of them or something like that and they're not venomous right no no, sorry they're not deadly to us yeah they're not well it would be really painful but no there's no spiders that are um in san diego at least that are uh gonna cause really any sort of 
major problem unless you've got a super duper weakened immune system and even then you're probably going to be okay black i thought black widows could potentially be harmful it, you'd have to again that's one that goes into the category of a, you'd have to have a super weakened immune oh. system um it mostly is you know, it i guess it you know all the dose is the poison you know so it depends on how much uh you get envenomated but i've been bitten by a black widow spider and it caused cramps um in my in my abdominal cramps, but that was it, you know. I guess, yeah, that's an interesting um, concept that's been kind of, I don't know, I've, I've heard like deadly Black Widow, mm-hmm. and it's not just sure. the whole, you know, science fiction Black Widow, like there's a lot of, that's a lot of, there's a lot of imagery yeah, yeah. of that particular spider being totally. deadly, and so yeah. I've, I've, I've made assumptions that yeah. have been corrected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the black widows are native, and you know, mm. so they are from our our region uh, historically. And one of the interesting things some researchers up in Riverside are looking at is displacement of black widows by brown widows, mm. and you know, um, whether or not people care about that because you know, but but it's not like it's not like some non you know, medically uh, scary spiders replacing. Um, you know, a med- medically scary spider. It's yeah. that you're taking one thing that causes issues, and you're just replacing it with another one. So, yeah, you're not even you're not even safer just because you got brown widows in your yard. Uh, but <clears throat> invasive species in general can be, um, you know, species that come from foreign lands and uh, uh, kind of take over the habitat sure. of uh, competitors is can be a large problem. And with yeah. uh, certain ecosystems, it seems that that they're not overpowering the black widows but maybe displacing them it seems like Mm. but that that segues into another um species that is likes to hang out around humans and it's mostly in southern california because humans tend to irrigate their yards uh and we live otherwise in a relatively dry ecosystem and those are argentine ants Mm. which are uh as the name suggests from argentina and they are those are the ones that come into your house right that mm-hmm. when you you know that they're typically later in the summer because it's hotter and drier out in the areas where they would prefer to be hanging out um so they come into your house often looking for water more than they're looking for food but if they find food they'll eat food as well <laughs> and they're they're opportunists uh, yeah opportunists exactly and that's what a lot of invasive species really fall into that category they're good opportunists they're mm. they're able to take advantage of situations um you know really easily and cuz if you got a really narrow ecological niche then you really got to land in the right spot you know but if you can i can make it anywhere you know then you're you're very likely to be an invasive species. Make it anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so are the Argentine ants displacing any local ant species? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, there was some really good work that was done out of UC San Diego. Uh, uh, now it's been a few decades ago, but where they were looking at Argentine ants' impact on um, native ant diversity and how that sort of cascaded up, if cascades can go up, how it cascades up the food chain to um, the horned toad lizards or the coastal horned lizards. Mm. And that's one of these interesting things where, you know, I go out and I give presentations to various groups all over San Diego and you meet people who've, you know, they've lived here their entire lives and they're in their 70s or their 50s or their 60s or whatever. And one of the comments that I get the most is, I used to see a lot more horn lizards than I see now. Like, what, what happened to all the horn lizards? 
And Argentine ants are at least partially part of that story because horn lizards eat ants uh, and they don't like Argentine ants, probably because Argentine ants are really small. They prefer mm. larger ants, like the big harvester, or what a lot of people around here call red ants, the big red ants. They prefer in that size class. It's probably also that Argentine ants might produce something that is stinky to them. But the problem is, is that when Argentine ants get into an ecosystem, they will they don't share well. They didn't go to kindergarten. They don't play well with others. <laughs> and so you can have an ecosystem that might have had it's not unusual to have like a you know, twenty or so species within any given square mile or something like that. And if the Argentine ants come in, you usually end up with an Argentine ant and maybe two to three other species. Oh wow. Um and so that's bad news for these uh, horned lizards that don't like Argentine ants, right? Yeah. So, huh. yeah. Well, I think it also shows that how important insects are to, you know, not just their own ecosystems, but, you know, everything eats something. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, ants and protections, um, I've seen a couple of reports, and I don't necessarily think this is true, but, um, you know, the fifth, I think fifth rarest uh, insect in the world is something that's called a panda ant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is not actually an ant. It's yeah. a wasp. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but yeah. that is, there are, I, I was wondering if you could clarify about whether or not um, that would be an ant that we could even begin to see in right. this county. So the panda ant, it looks, it's, it's really cute. It's fuzzy. It's black yeah. and white. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's mostly in Argentina and Chile, right? Yeah. 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 Um, the I think that's one of those cute like it must have been on some listicle of some kind of like <laughs> the ten cutest you know insects yeah. in the world because it is adorable. just like so fuzzy and darling. Um, but they they don't they are rare. I can't speak to how rare they are, but they're mm. definitely only found within a very isolated area of Argentina and um, and I think Chile as well. But they're in this group that are called the mutilids or the velvet ants. And even though there's ant in the name, you're correct. They're not ants. They're wasps. Um, but the females don't have wings. They never have wings as any part of their life cycle. And so they're solitary. They don't live in giant hives. I mean, that would be wonderful if you saw like a giant hive of cute little fuzzy panda ants. But that's not going to happen. And then also um, a giant, you know, even though they're cute and fuzzy, they uh, sting really powerfully. Um, so the on the East Coast, there's a really big red velvet ant uh, that the, the common name for it is cow killers. Because, you know, not because they kill cows, but because the pain hurts so much that certainly it would kill a cow, you know, kind of thing. Because <laughs> we, what, 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 we can survive a cow, certainly. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, of course. But we do have, um, we do have some very cute uh, velvet ants in San Diego County. So yeah. there are, we might not have the little cute little panda guy, but we've got, particularly as you get under the desert, you get some pretty sizable velvet ants out there. And there's some that are just bright red and black. And then there's others that are silver, um, silvery white uh, that almost look like, and in fact, the common name for them, I think is called the thistle down ant because it almost looks like, you know, dandelion uh, seeds, you know, how that little feather, it almost looks like that that's like rolling across the ground. And then you look closer and go, oh no, that thing has six legs. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, because I've I've seen them on on hikes. Sure. Like um, in even in oh I'm missing, I'm forgetting the name of it as well. The um, 
in the Cleveland National Park. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hiking out there, and I've seen yeah, them, sure. you know, an hour away. Sure, yeah. Um, so I know people don't want bugs in their home. Right. That's that's a you know a common mm-hmm. thing that people don't like. However, because we live in an area where um, we've displaced maybe a lot of the habitat that it, that well not necessarily just ants but uh, yeah. bugs in general would be using. Is there are there ways that people in San Diego uh, can take precautions to keep maybe bugs out of their home but not kill them like not or right. or at least risk killing something that is rare and needs sure. our protection. Yeah. I, um, you know, the likelihood of, of people having something, you know, around their home or entering their home that falls into that category of rare and requires protection is, is fairly low. Um, just, um, I can't say that definitively. Sure, right? Like, there's going to be somebody who's got some really weird, rare species <laughs> in their backyard right now who's going, he's wrong. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there, so a lot of the insects that do come into our home are these things that are really widespread, like roaches and ants and yeah. cellar spiders. You know, these are the things that we, we commonly see. Uh, and there are, you know, particularly pe- people ask me all the time about these Argentine ants because everybody in San Diego gets yeah. them in their house. I mean, it's in, 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 invariable. And with that, there's sort of two things you can do. One is zeroscape your yard, actually. If you Zero, want to do. I'm not sure what zeroscape. Zeroscape means to like convert it into a low water yard, oh, right? Okay. You know, like lots of succulents and gravel instead of like you know fields of green grass and things that you have to heavily irrigate because that's what they're after, right? Hmm. Is that they the, they really like moist soil to hang out in and so people have even done studies where you can go from like the side of a canyon like the top of the mesa right that's where everybody lives and you start going down the canyon and into the canyon you sort of sample the ants along the way and right near homes argentine ants argentine ants argentine ants argentine ants and then you start the further you get away and the less irrigated it gets and the drier and more natural it becomes then you don't have the Argentine ants anymore. And so that's one thing you can do. You can zero escape. And then, you know, there's there's clearly all sorts of um, services that will come and, you know, spray and do all that sort of stuff. But that's really where you have to start worrying about how is that impacting the native things. I mean, yeah. and certainly, you know, what I would be um, – worry the most about is, you know, our native pollinators, our native bees, um, because those can – live in people's yards, uh, depending upon what the soil's like and stuff like that, or at least adjacent. And a lot of people are build bee gardens or butterfly gardens, you know, they want to sort of feed the, feed the insects and you certainly don't want to be spraying, um, chemicals, uh, and trying to attract native things cause that would be bad for them. Okay. Uh, so the Point Luma surveys are are completed now. Are there other areas in San Diego that you guys are targeting? Um, maybe things that, uh, places that people visit? Uh, well, the other big project, we, there's two big, big projects that we have going on now in San Diego. And then we do a lot of work in Baja California as well. Uh, but we're working up on Camp Pendleton, very similar to what we did with Point Loma, establishing a baseline, uh, for they're, they're particularly interested in the impacts of, climate change and the potential of using insects is kind of like a canary in a coal mine at mm-hmm. some level to, to note differences and in indicator species perhaps of, of, of change in the habitats. 
So in order to do that, you got to establish a really good baseline. So we've been working up there. We're in our, I think we're in our fifth year because you have to get a lot of years in a row because the climate's so variable. You know, in between years, we had one super duper rainy year. We've had many, many dry years, you know, how that impacts everything we're trying to suss out. Um, the other project that we're working on, and this is a museum-wide project, is in inland wetlands. So, and these are, the, you'll at least recognize probably some of these names, but like there's San Felipe Valley over in Anza Borrego, right on the corner, or on the edge of the the Cuyamacas and, and Anza Borrego Desert. There's this nice uh, valley that goes through there that has these riparian areas, right? Riparians like river river habitat, right? So there's, if there's not permanent water in these areas, it's almost permanent water. And so mm. Warner Springs falls in that category. There's an area called Clover Flats. These are, and these are all, you know, places that are generally either protected uh, by some sort of state agency or some sort of land conservancy. And the reason why we're interested in them is because when people think of wetlands in Southern California, they think of lagoons. You know, they don't, you know, it's, it's the estuaries, it's yeah. the, um, Penasquitos, it's, uh, you know, it's San Alejo Lagoon kind of thing, but we do have these very small, despite the fact that we're a desert, <laughs> we do have these very small inland wetlands and, uh, what, what we're looking at is the, what is the value of those inland wetlands to biodiversity and wildlife because, you can almost treat them like an oasis, right? Yeah. And how important is that oasis to be sort of a refugia through the summer so that when the winter rains come back, things can sort of expand out from that uh, wetland area. So we're trying to document that because surprisingly it's not very well understood and it certainly has management implications and conservation implications for how we, you know, um, manage all sorts of wildlife and what areas we want to make sure we protect because they're super important, you yeah. know. So. Well, I think that, and I might be wrong about this. Sure. It might be my my perception, yeah. but it does feel a lot like the desert gets left behind, mm-hmm. you know, in right. terms of when we throw money, you yeah. know, whatever little money we have in science, <laughs> yeah. when we throw money at a yeah. project, it seems to be um, something that is considered, quote unquote, sexy. Yeah, you know, sure. I think that's something that the public can get behind. Yeah. And yeah. the idea of uh, puddles in the desert doesn't necessarily. Right. <laughs> right. But um, at the same time, you're right. You, these areas need are a refuge for the, yeah. for animals that are just waiting for the next rainy season. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can't remember what I was reading recently where they, um, it was a really old account, like, probably um, late 1800s, early 1900s of Baja, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were like people who were explorers and who actually at some level appreciated biodiversity, but they were like, it's a wasteland, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <Exciting>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that is a general, I think, view of even not just once you go over to the mountains, but I think a lot of people who visit San Diego during the driest time of the year go like, man, this is brown and crackly and dry here. Like, and they don't really appreciate the, the seasons that we have are really unique. And it creates this, this biodiversity that's really unique to where we live. And, um, we value it at the museum at least. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the museum, do you guys have anything, um, like that's coming up that might involve, 
um, any of the things that we've discussed. Like, do you have any cool bug exhibits coming up? Yeah, right. So the um, there's what what sort of buggy things do we have going on? Uh, generally, in our skulls exhibit, uh, which is about vertebrates, not mm-hmm. invertebrates, uh, we have a little terrarium up there in which we have dermestid beetles that are feeding on the the skulls to clean them up you know so when our mammalogy department gets specimens you know for various kinds of ways we get a lot of like roadkill believe it or not and uh and a lot of these uh outfits that try to do animal rescue you know not every animal survives that rescue process and so we give them a second life uh, in the museum, and it's, it's a perpetual life. Because <laughs> I think that – I don't know – I know that most museums do use – I'm sorry, what kind of bugs? Dermestids or carpet beetles yeah. is an, or skin beetles is another name for them. But I haven't seen a – you guys have that, that public exhibit, which is kind yeah, of cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's just we, – we have uh, a warehouse where we've got a – a storage compa- uh, storage container dedicated to keeping a large colony of these. So mm. what we have on the floor is just for demonstration, you know, purposes, but it's pretty effective at demonstrating it. So we got that. And then, um, and then in the, uh, I think it's in late, late July, um, of 2019, we're going to be opening up what we're calling our it, it'll this is a working title so it'll have a different name you know? <laughs> but it's a pollinator hallway um where we are going to be making the connection between insects and flowers and in, in a very kid-friendly way it's in an area of the museum that's really oriented towards the towards the smaller size kids and so oh. uh, we'll have some some stuff if people want to learn more about our native pollinators and we'll have that in the summer that's excellent yeah. All right. Well, I think that that's all the questions I had for you, unless you had any closing remarks about bugs in our county. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, that the, you know, generally the sorts of questions that I get, like I, you know, w- there are very few resources to call if you are interested in insects in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And typically, when people are interested in insects, they're interested in how to get rid of insects, you know. (laughs) Or a lot of people are concerned about when they see um, honeybees uh, um, swarming and maybe settling in their backyard because everybody wants to do right by honeybees and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And then people want to know how to get rid of their ants, you know. So it's all these things that people want to get rid of um, or maybe want to help in the case of honeybees. And I would just say that, like, we've got this incredible diversity of insects um, in San Diego. I think, you know, we've, it's, it, we, there's a researcher uh, who's at UCSD who was looking at the native bees of our um, San Diego canyons. Mm-hmm. And over the course of his working on his dissertation, he, he, he's up to about, I think, 600 different species of native bees in San Diego. And so, you know, we are, um, we have the highest number of plant species of any county in the United States, including Hawaii. Uh, And so we also very likely, we just haven't tallied them all, have the most diversity of all sorts of insects. And 
And the vast majority of those insects just don't care about us, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's cool. And, uh, and, and if we care about them, then the way we care about them should not be care about getting rid of them, but like, you know, supporting them because they provide all these ecosystem services like pollination and nutrient transfer and all sorts of things. They, they feed things that are showier that we do like, like birds and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'm always trying to preach the good word of insect appreciation. I am here to listen. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think that um, I always try to give people the the tip of staying on paths. Like we have a lot of amazing hiking mm -hmm. in San Diego and you can see all of these amazing birds and snakes if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think I like to get down uh, like on the, the path and take pictures of bugs as well because yeah. uh, you can get really close and personal because they don't really seem to care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, also staying on, like just making sure. sure you're walking where you're told because <laughs> they a lot of them live underground. <laughs> so. yeah, right. Well, yeah, and I mean, the, as soon as you get off path, there's a whole bunch of problems that start to, you, you know, in terms of erosion, but also humans are vectors for a lot of the invasive plant species, for instance. And so we were just on this expedition to the um, islands in the Gulf of California, Sea of Cortez, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of these islands hardly ever get visited by people at all. So we were making sure, like, before we get into the, we were on a boat, and we would get into these skiffs to go to uh, land. And every time before we got on to the skiff, our botanists would be like, everybody check your shoes, because, you know, you can have little grass seeds and stuff like that in your shoes, and all of a sudden you become the vector for something that shouldn't be, you know, in a place that you love. And, and that's kind yeah. of, a, you know, a sad thing. So we should always, always be careful and Try don't to do the best we can. Don't bring the Argentina ant. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that about wraps it up. I am going to be linking to a couple of the bee papers that Michael talked about. We're going to be linking to the San Diego Natural History Museum's website where you can look at all of the different critters that the gnat has on offer. It's a really, really cool thing, and you can try to identify some of the bugs yourself. I would definitely take a closer look at that. Um, I can't remember them right now, but there are other papers that I'm definitely going to list in the footnotes, so go ahead and take a look at those. Uh, thanks again to Derek Acosta and John Wanzer for making this uh, interview happen, and to Emily Jankowski for allowing me to record this right now. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Bye.